back with you. Um, grateful for uh, for Dave for filling in for me last week. Um, I, I was out of town again. There I go. Here I am trying to tell you where I was. Um, no, some of you know I had a birthday and my um, Kim uh, rented uh, a cabin for the weekend over near Lake Lure in North Carolina and uh, all our children came in all five children came in um, and celebrated the old man so, uh, yeah so I am 60 now yeah just a babe The best is yet to come, they say. That's what, that's what everyone keeps telling me. I hope that's true. Um, so I'm not so sure. But, uh, but it was fun. And uh, we told lots of stories. And uh, children moved me deeply. They all wrote a poem for me. And they were in equal parts clever and dear and uh, yeah so uh, it was very very sweet uh, sweet time together so um, I missed you all but um, only so much <laughs> yeah but I knew you were in good hands as always so so here's here's what you've been waiting to hear Next week is the last Sunday on the social principles. Okay? Yeah. 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 So it's. Uh, I know it's a relief. We've been doing it a long time, but uh, we're gonna we're gonna try to wrap it up, and then um, that'll mean we'll be able to do something else beginning with Advent. So we'll. Last Sunday is the last Sunday of the church year, as you know. And so um, when we move into Advent, we'll move into uh, something different. Um, so that means we're going to go pretty quickly these last two weeks. 
Um, we still have two sections. Um, today is the easy one, just it's on economics. Like what could be controversial about that? Um, yeah. So, uh, so that's what we're going to do. That's section four. If you have your social principles, and you probably don't because you just quit bringing them because you thought, gosh, we're going to be in it forever, so why carry this every week? Uh, it's on page, it starts on page 46. Um, and it's only about six pages, but if you know anything about the United Methodist Church and Wesley himself, um, Part of what the United Methodist Church, or at least the Methodist Church, early on was understood to be, and Wesley was deeply passionate uh, about the plight of common working people and the and the poor, and uh, he devoted himself not just his energies to that, but actually uh, a kind of breathtaking percentage of his own income. Most of you know that by the end of his life, he was living on a very very tiny percent of his own income um, and, and died with nothing. He said, if I die with anything, that's that I robbed God. So it, it was unbelievable what he, he did. So he was deeply passionate and worked. Uh, we, we mentioned this when we started doing the social principles, but just to remind you. And so in these six pages, a number of things are taken up. And all, we're just going to deal with two or three of them at the most. Um, but the main reason is just to remind you that this, these are things about which United Methodist Church has tried to go on record saying that this is part of our discipleship. This is part of what it means to love our neighbor is to be concerned about economic justice. Remember, the, the social principles make clear very early on that it's not just a matter of charity. Uh, there's a place for charity. There's a place uh, for that. But it's also an issue of justice. What is due to our neighbor? Um, not just what can I give to my neighbor because they're going through hardship. That's, that's an important role in the Christian faith. But do I also have, do we as a church, uh, do we as, as United Methodist Church worldwide, um, also try to be a voice for economic justice? Understanding that that's obviously not always easy to understand. But we're going to try to pick a few places today where we can at least see why the United Methodist Church has weighed in. And that's about all we can do. We said from the very beginning, you don't have to agree. Um, but I hope that you'll at least see that there's an issue. And it's not as though the United Methodist Church weighs in at every point and says this is what should happen. But it is at least trying to acknowledge that there are real serious issues here that bear on the well-being and thriving of our neighbors. And so if we're going to care about loving our neighbors, we have to care whether we live in an economic situation where they can actually thrive, not just in this country, but around the world, because United Methodist Church is a global church, and we care about our neighbors around the world. So it's interesting that even in the original in the original creed, uh, the United Methodist Creed back in 1908, a huge portion of it was devoted to economic issues. Um, the vast majority of it actually was devoted to economic issues. I'll just remind you of uh, four or five things that the original creed back in 1908 said. Um, that United Methodist 
then it was the Methodist Episcopal Church, stands for the principles of conciliation and arbitration in, in, in industrial consensions. So what we call uh, today, you know, the, the right to unionize and the right uh, to collective bargaining, right? Even back in 1908, they were advocating for that as a church, right? For the protection of workers from dangerous machinery, occupational diseases, injuries, right? So worker safety they were concerned about. That's an economic issue, not just a safety issue. For the abolition of child labor, right? That's an economic issue. How do we, how does, what, what is our economy based on? Is it based on child labor? Um, what else? For, the, for release, for the employment for one day, like the six day week, a six day work week. Right? That's part of our economy. For a living wage, in every industry. And back in 1908, the Methodist Church was pressing for a living wage. We'll come to that. Um, like, what is a living wage and why does the church care about it? For the highest wage each industry can afford and for the most equitable division of the products of industry that can ultimately be devised. So, about two thirds of it is issues around. Um, economics. And so on page 46 there are several things that are mentioned. Uh, again, we can't go into everything. Uh, it talks about the role of private property, collective bargaining, talks about responsible consumption because that's a huge part of our economy. Right? Most of you know that about two-thirds, uh, around 60 to 70 percent of the American economy is driven, driven by consumer dollars. And so that's part of what makes our engine run, uh, the economy run. But there's also a shadow side to that. And so United Methodists have to talk about that. It's complicated. Um, so responsible consumption. It talks about uh, protection for immigrant workers. Um, as you know, a lot of our farming in this country is done by immigrant workers who are very vulnerable. Um, a lot of them don't have the worker rights that a lot of other workers have in our country. And so United Methodist Church cares about uh, the non-exploitation of particularly immigrant labor. Has a section on gambling, which we won't talk about because I don't want to step on base toes. Um, yeah, don't bet on it. Yeah. Touche. Talks about the, has a section on the need for family farms and the danger to our economy uh, of having the farming industry more and more uh, sort of concentrated in fewer and fewer hands and how that's a, a dangerous thing, uh, both for family farms and for the economy as a whole. Uh, it has a section on corporate responsibility and has a, a section warning about excessive government debt. Um, and so, so it, 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 there's a lot of things that are there, right? A lot of concerns that it weighs in on. Um, but we're just going to look, we're going to look at three uh, things that, and we're going to try to talk about how they connect to love of neighbor uh, and concern for the poor uh, and issues of, of justice. So the first one we want to talk about um, and I make it first because uh, Lorraine told me um, before she left um, 
that this, when Walt was animated about the social principles, this was the one thing in his own life, uh, Walt Seaman, that he was most animated about, the one thing in the economy that worried him the most. And that was the issue of income inequality. And uh, he was really deeply, deeply bothered by that. As someone who was, you know, a leader in, in industry, right? Um, he was concerned about that. And, and Lorraine said one of the things that most deeply moved him at the funeral were people who were there who were just regular workers. Um, and that, that moved him, that, they, that Walt had shown concern for them. And they hadn't forgotten that. And they made, they made the effort uh, to be here uh, at his funeral. So I was going to start with that and just try to talk a little bit about it and why it might be uh, an issue of justice. So if you, if you keep track or if you pay attention, a lot of, I mean, I'm rarely telling this group anything they don't know because um, you are well-read and often better read than I am. But one of the concerns uh, that people have that has sort of exploded over the last uh, couple decades is the disparity uh, in our economy uh, between um, what's often called the 1% and the rest of people. And it's particularly played out in economy in the, the compensation for CEOs. Okay. Um, and just to give you some historical perspective, in 1960, uh, the average CEO made 30 times the median salary of their workers. Okay? Not the lowest, but the median. You know what the median is. So you take the median salary of your workers. And in 1960, the CEO made 30 times that amount annually. Okay, so the average worker would have to work 30 years to make what the CEO made in one. Okay, that's 1960. Recently, the average for the United States for CEOs is 300 times. Okay, 300 times the median salary of the average worker. Okay. Now, that's, lots of economists are, are worried about that because that's roughly equivalent to what it was back in the, in the 20s before the Depression. Um, and then it actually went down and now has come back up. Okay? So the 30 was on the way back up. Now, with the crash of 2008, one of the things that happened was there's uh, new reporting requirements. Because what we had right now before the crash was all we had were national averages. It wasn't public information, publicly traded companies didn't have to reveal what their CEOs were paid. And, but now they have to. 
And so now we don't just have the average, we know what particular CEOs of industries make. Okay. And again, this is, this is not a matter of envy. Uh, this is not a, a matter, the question is, it's a matter of justice because the United States productivity has increased incredibly over the last 20 or 30 years, but the fruits of that have not necessarily gone to the average worker. And so the question is, is that just? Yeah. Right? That's the question. Is it just? If, if the success of companies, and no one's saying the CEO shouldn't get anything. Right? Of course. Um, but what is just? And it's hard to say. It's not like it's, there's a formula for this. But let me just give you some examples. The CEO of Marathon Oil, uh, the last report, makes 935 times what the average median worker makes. 935 means the average have to work almost a thousand years to make what the CEO makes in one. Del Monte, 1,500 times the average worker. Manpower, you know the employment agency? 2,500 times what the average worker makes. Okay? <laughs> and so, yeah. So when people talk about the concentration, the growing disparity, um, that's what they're talking about. And the question is, as Christians and as our neighbors, um, is it just, right? Is it just for, and the, and the point is there's been no accountability. One of the reasons this is, one of the reasons the law was passed to make this public so that people could make choices. If you say the market, I mean, this, and, and, and everyone agrees, economists will tell you these CEO salaries have nothing to do with the market. They're not market driven. They're not market driven. I mean, they, they are in positions to do this. And, and, and part, of the, part of the rage that happened, of course, after the 2008 crash was that many of the CEOs that were responsible for the crash got bonuses. Right, got bonuses. Um, in the two, in between 2009 and 2011, those three years, 85% um, of the wealth that was recouped in those three years went to the top 1%. Okay. Um, and again, maybe that's, how, maybe that's just, maybe how it should be, but people are at least asking questions. How do you care for your neighbor in the midst of that kind of inequality when, when people are trying um, to get on with their lives and the brunt of that, the brunt, of course, of the crash fell on uh, the bottom 20%. Um, the people who lost their homes, right? Lost their homes, got upside down on their mortgages. Um, and so that's 
The question is, how do you have an economy? And it's hard when you're a free market economy. It's hard to figure out um, what's the right amount of regulation to have. No one wants to handicap the economy entirely. Uh, but people are wondering whether this has got out of hand. And so there are some corrections, because by reporting it, people can know. And so shareholders can know. Uh, People in the market can know, like, do I want to do business with this company, right? If, if I don't feel like their workers, you know, they're making a lot of money, but it doesn't feel like their workers are rising on this boat, which is what we're always told, you know. We say that, you know, when wealth is created, all boats rise, but it doesn't look like that's happening, actually. And we'll get to that when we talk about a living wage, specifically, about... But again, if you look at all the charts by The Economist, most of you have heard that the wages of average people in the first 60% of uh, American economy have been stag pretty stagnant for almost 40 years. Okay. And so it, it feels like there's this disparity where some people are some people are benefiting disproportionately okay enormously disproportionately not just a little bit okay you could argue for some disproportion that the ceo but like how many times right uh, how many times more and so that's that's an issue and the question is, can you have a healthy economy with that kind of income inequality? And if we had time, we'd talk about wealth inequality, which is not the same thing as income inequality. But wealth inequality in the United States is even more severe than income inequality. And we talked about that a little bit uh, a few weeks ago uh, when we were talking about housing and redlining um, and how that uh, disproportionately affected the creation of wealth, uh, particularly in minority communities. Um, so that's, that's one issue. And the question is, how have people been responding to it? Well, a couple ways. Um, and there's no way to fix this, but reporting was the first thing, to at least make people aware of it. Hopefully that, because um, then you have to justify it. <laughs> Right? You want somebody to justify, like, okay, tell me why your CEO is paid 2,500 times the amount of your average worker. Like, explain that to me. I mean, a board needs to ask that, right? Uh, stockholders need to ask that. But there are things that can happen. I mean, there's interesting, there are a number of cities uh, around the country now who have passed their own local laws where they're going to start putting a small surcharge on the business tax if it's if your CEO's paid more than 100 times your worker, there'll be a small tax. If it's 250 times, it's going to be a larger tax. So the point is, if you're going to work in our town and hire our people, then you need to be just to our people. And if you're not, you're either going to pay this tax or you'll leave, but you're not going to exploit our people. Okay? And maybe they'll leave, but I don't know. 
Um, but at least somebody's trying to press. Somebody's trying to press the issue. And there's actually been some national legislation. It's not gone anywhere yet, but there are people who are at least thinking about um, something like that. Another way it's happening, and this, this is getting some traction, is that there would be even a federal law. I mean, we have federal laws now about racial inequality, gender inequality in the workplace. And the question is, should there be economic? Should we, should we work about? Here's, here's the issue. Why should you and I, uh, if a lot of these companies do business with the government, why should you and I subsidize CE, ridiculous CEO salaries? Why should tax dollars go for that? So some people are saying there ought to be a threshold that says if your CEO salary is out of this range, then you're not eligible to compete for, uh, yes, uh, for government uh, contracts. Which again would be a way of saying, you know, you can continue doing what you're doing, but the taxpayers are not going to subsidize your salary, which is what we would be doing. Okay. So there is a little bit of leverage there. Um, and the United Methodist Church is just trying to put its voice in to say, it looks like we have a problem. What can we do? It's not as though the United Methodist Church has the answer for it. But at least it's willing to say, it looks to us like this is unjust because it connects with what people make. And so let's talk a little bit about the living wage because you notice that even back in um, the original social creed, there was this issue of a living wage in every industry. And so if you want to talk about the way in which you know, people at the bottom haven't benefited the way you think they would from the economy, uh, people say, you know, all boats rise. Well, have they? Who knows what the minimum wage was when the federal minimum wage went into effect in 1968? Anybody remember? Most of you were alive. I was a child. Anybody remember? A dollar sixty. A dollar sixty in 1968. That's 50 years ago. Who, who knows what it is now? 725. When was that enacted? When did it go to 725? 2009. Okay, 2009. So it hasn't been raised since 2009. Almost 10 years. So, if you take a dollar sixty in a, in 1968, and you correct for inflation. What would the minimum wage have to be today to be exactly the same as it was in 1968? $11.87. $11.87. The minimum wage, the federal minimum wage would have to be $11.87 today to be equivalent to $1.60 in 1968. So minimum wage workers have gotten a significant cut in wages since 1968. Okay. Is that fair? 
Um, most of you know you can't live on. You work 40 hours a week at minimum wage, you can't live on that. It's a little over $10,000 a year. That's why you got grandkids living with grandma. Yeah. <laughs> so nobody argues, nobody argues that minimum wage is a living wage. Okay? Nobody argues that minimum wage is a living wage. And no one thinks that the answer to income inequality is simply raising the minimum wage. But what would be a living wage? I mean, there are people, and the, the church has been arguing, trying to talk about a living wage since the Middle Ages. So this is not a new thing. Wesley didn't make it up. Um, the church didn't make it up. But it's been a feature for the last hundred years in a lot of uh, worldwide Christianity to try to think that part of what a just economy would be would be to pay people a living wage. And it's a very simple question to ask. Should somebody in our economy work 40 hours a week and not be able to support themselves? I mean, should they have to work two or three jobs? Should they have to work 80 hours a week? Well, education is available for anyone. That's right. And if they get a better education, then they're going, they're going to earn a better wage. Well, they can. They can. Although there are a lot of, a lot of people are underemployed, uh, given their qualifications. Um, it's not simple, though. It, no, no one's saying it's simple. It is not simple. No one's saying it's simple. Um, it's absolutely not simple. But a lot of things in life are simple. Um, the question is, why do I go to bed so easily each night, not worried about this? Right? Because I'm comfortable. I make, I make a living wage. And probably most of us do. And, and so we're back to the income inequality. You know, you can say, well, you know, if all these companies are making lots of money, everybody benefits, but it doesn't look like everyone's benefiting. And the CEOs forget who put them there. They're well, little workers. Yeah. I'm not trying to put the whole burden on CEOs. That's just no, an example. I know, I know, it's just an example uh, of a larger problem, okay, of a larger problem. And so what would a living wage look like? And could you have one? Well, it's interesting. And, and no one's arguing that it even has to be um, compulsory. I mean, it's interesting movement happened in the UK uh, back in the early 2000s in the United Kingdom, where a lot of churches were concerned about this. And there were other groups in the UK that were concerned about this, other social socially conscious groups. And they got together and said, what if we began a campaign for a living wage in the UK? And so they did, and they're going to try and make it voluntary. And they tried to appeal to the better angels of companies. Uh, and so they do a calculation every year in the UK what a living wage would be, right? That covers the basics. What would be an hourly wage? And every year, 
on the first day of November, it just readjusted. It gets adjusted every year. Okay? And there's one weight for most of the UK, and there's a little higher rate for London because it's higher cost of living there. And right now in the UK, there are 4,700 companies that pay a living wage voluntarily. And 93% of them report that their business is better than it was before, that they have benefited from it. Their workers are happier, they're more loyal, they feel like they're actually cared for, and it, it has, yes. I mean, this is the thing about income inequality, um, is that the people in the lowest quartiles or quintiles, right, spend a higher percentage of their money. They have to to survive. So it's actually good for the economy when they have money to spend, right? And so, I mean, it's an interesting model. I'm not saying it would work in the United States, but it's an interesting model to say, uh, and a lot of those are not just small companies either. Uh, they have their own index, right? The FTSE 100 over there. And a third of those companies pay a living wage. And so it's not just little mom and pop shops. I mean, it's some of the major companies that you would recognize their names in the UK. But that was all voluntary. That was pressured by, it was started by church people, just raising the issue and saying, we're better than this. You know, we're better than this. Uh, we should care about our neighbors. Um, and I don't know, I'm hopeful. And they're, every year they're trying to add more people and every year it goes up. I mean, they do the recalculation, the price just went up, not because, just automatic, because they recalculated what's the living wage for this year. Everybody adjusted. They go on. So I mean, that's a hopeful thing. It, I mean, so yes, it's complicated, but people didn't let the complicate. Now again, does, does that mean everybody's living comfortably like I am? No, it doesn't. But it means that they're at least being paid a wage that covers you know, a good part of their basic necessities. Now, if you're really interested in this, if you want more data than you can possibly use. Um, we talked about this once, and so I didn't bring the data because I knew we wouldn't have time because we're running out, of course. But M MIT, um, you've heard of that place, has done the calculations for what the wage would have to be in every county in the country, including Washington County, um, to, and, and you've got columns, like how much you have to make to basically support like one earner with uh, a spouse and one child, or no children, or two children. Um, how much you'd have to make an hour to, to do that. Just for information, just so you know, like how much does it cost to actually live in Washington County as opposed to say, you know, Greensboro, or Nashville, or San Francisco. It's different, right? And that's part of the challenge in the United States is because there's great variation, of course, in where you live. And so, if you're interested, it's not hard. Just type in MIT, you know, wage, average wage, average income. Um, it's not hard to find. If you can't find it, let me know. 
Um, I don't expect a huge email uh, flood asking. Um, yeah. So th those are two issues. Last issue, just because we're running out of time, just very briefly. Obviously, another place this shows up. Um, yeah, I'm really going to get in trouble now, but it's Thanksgiving, so um, <laughs> if nothing else, you'll be thankful come Thursday that we're almost done. You might become the turkey, though. Yeah, I might. Okay. <laughs> Take one for the team. <laughs> Tax policy is a moral issue. Okay? Tax policy is a moral issue. And it's challenging. Is challenging. Uh, nobody likes taxes. At least I don't know very many people that like taxes. Although we all like what taxes make possible. Um, and most of you know, um, one of the things that the social principle says is that it will. The social principles, the United Methodist Church, will support progressive tax policy as opposed to regressive tax policy, right? That's the difference, right? A regressive tax is one that exacerbates, okay, let's just give me an example. Let's say that uh, right now, if you, if you break United States taxpayers into quintiles, lowest 20%, next 20, middle 20, 80, then the, okay? The question is, at the end of the day, when tax, so you start before, you say, what's the, what's the average income disparity? Say it's 125 times. Then after everyone's paid their taxes, what's, what's the ratio, right? If the ratio is greater, then that's a regressive tax policy, okay? If it's progressive, it's shrunken a little bit, okay? At least hasn't made things worse. As far as state and local taxes go, as you probably know, uh, Tennessee has the sixth most regressive tax policy in the country. Okay. The sixth most, because uh, we, we have no income tax and we, we rely heavily on sales tax, which is regressive. So let me just give you the numbers, just so that you know. I'm not making this up. In Tennessee, the poorest 20% of Tennesseans pay 10.5% of their annual family income on state and local taxes. 10.5%. Their average income is $14,000. Okay, the lowest 20% in Tennessee their average income is $14,000. That, that means they're paying $2,240 in taxes out of that $14,000, okay? So think about that. You have $14,000 for the year in income and 2,240 of it's going to state and local taxes. Right? The top the top one percent in Tennessee is paying not ten point five percent of their income at two point eight. Okay? 
That's what it turns out with their family income. Total taxes of the United States. So let's just pack up from Tennessee. It is slightly, slightly progressive. The top 20% in the United States pay roughly 30%. The middle 20% pays 25%. Okay? Middle, middle 20% in the United States pays 25%. And the lowest 20% still pays 16%. Okay, total taxes, total tax bill. Okay. So it, it's, it's challenging. Nobody likes taxes. Nobody likes taxes, but we have made a decision in Tennessee, for good or ill, and it depends on who you're asking, to depend quite heavily on taxes that everybody agrees are regressive. We've tried to take the bite out of it a little bit recently by trying to lower the tax on food a little bit. That helped. Grateful for that. Um, but it's still a huge chunk. right? And the question is, in what sense is that fair? Right? Um, so, if nothing else, the next time you hear somebody try, even though they know it's a fool's errand, to even raise the question about whether Tennessee will ever have an income tax, try to remember that's, that's a moral issue. That's not just an issue about my pocketbook, myself. That's a moral issue. It's, it's about my neighbor's well-being, not just mine. And that's, it's hard to sort through, right? Um, but, the, but these are real questions. This is why, this is why United Methodist Church has taken the risk, and you might wish they hadn't, this is why they've taken the risk to weigh in on matters like this because they do bear on the well-being of our neighbors. And so the well-being of our neighbors is not an abstract concept. Uh, it has some very concrete realities. Are there quick fixes to these? No, they're not. Are there simple fixes? No, there's not. But it also doesn't mean we can't do anything. Um, and at least I mean, part of the reasons that we're doing this is to say Loving, the United Methodist Church has been willing to say loving your neighbor takes a lot more discernment than, and a lot more thought and a lot more care than just having a warm heart for your neighbor, although that's a place to start. Okay? Uh, there are real concrete decisions we make every day that bear on the well-being of our neighbor. And that's what we're trying to remember when we're looking at the social principles. Let's pray. Gracious God, we come before you in this season of thanks to offer you thanks and praise for the ways in which you have always been at work for our well-being and the well-being of your creation, and that you have called us ourselves to be at work with you, caring for our neighbors, 
not just with acts of charity and love, but also seeking justice for them, that they may have the dignity of their own work, uh, may be respected for their own work and efforts. We realize these are challenging matters, O oh God, and yet we pray that your church and your people around the world will uh, discern carefully with the guidance of your spirit how we might be uh, a part of this work, even in small ways in our everyday lives. May we uh, be mindful of those around us uh, who work hard to thrive and yet still find it difficult to thrive. Uh, may we be a voice and an advocate for them. May your church be a voice and an advocate for them as we join you in your work. We pray this through Christ. Amen. Bill, can I say something? Of course. I didn't want to interrupt you. The Wall Street Journal just published an article. And they said, if you have shelter, animals are homeownership. If you have clothing, shirt on your back, you have food, and you have transportation, and some access to health care, and you have twenty oh no, you have ninety-four thousand dollars, your wealth ranking is in the top one percent. So, you know, we're picking on the on the CEOs. I'm picking on the entertainers, the rappers, the football players. The, the, the golfers. I mean, Matt Kuchar, of all people who I, I love as far as golf is concerned, he was a tenth person to just reach $45 million. Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson make much more. Tiger Woods has hit a billion dollars playing golf. You know, I'm getting awakened at 2 o'clock in the morning to come to the pediatric ICU, infant ICU, for some child in respiratory distress, and I've got to do a tracheostomy on this child. That's stressful. Those guys aren't under that kind of stress. So we're jealous of those people that make all that money. What do you think these homeless people down here think about us? Uh, you know, we're probably the majority of the people here in the top 1%. Uh, so you can't just pick on the CEOs. we got a whole lot of other people to pick on. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I don't want I appreciate you saying that. No, it's not. It's not just them, right? Um, absolutely right. So, thank you. I don't want to live.